This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. I just wanted to welcome you all to the last colloquium of the, of the semester, and in lieu of Henry being out of town, uh, I will be introducing you, and for the people who are listening on podcast, uh, I am a graduate student here uh, in my second year who has been doing uh, work on soap opera for my master's thesis. My name is Sam Ford, and I wanted to introduce our guest speaker today, but I'm going to let her tell you her story since that's part of the reason she's here. Um, Kay Alden uh, was working on her, and she'll get into this much more, but was working on her dissertation about soap operas uh, as social, uh, and looking at them as agents of uh, and reacting to social change um, and interviewed some people from the soap opera industry as part of her dissertation. Never finished that dissertation, ended up going into the industry working as a writer for soaps and wrote for Young and the Restless for more than 30 years and was the head writer of that show up until very recently. Now does consult some consulting work for ABC Daytime and uh, was, uh, she is on my thesis committee as well as Lynn Licardo who is a guest here as well who has worked uh, in the soap opera press and who I met through uh, soap opera fandom, uh, some discussions on fan community boards. Um, so the idea was, since you all have heard me talk about my research for soaps for a while, that, that, that since we would have a longtime veteran of, of, of soap opera writing, um, writing in the soap opera world is much different than writing in any other television genre, particularly because of the 250 episodes a year. <laughs> one-hour episodes a year that are produced, and, and then the writing process is quite a bit different. So I thought it would be interesting to have that discussion of what it takes to, to write a soap opera and also where the soap opera genre is uh, at the current day, because uh, Kay's work has bridged now uh, four decades, um, started starting in the 70s up until the present day, uh, and has seen a lot of change during that time to daytime television and the daytime serial drama in particular. So. I wanted to uh, introduce Kay and uh, look forward to what she has to say and hopefully we'll have some, the idea is that she's just going to give a short uh, presentation and that it will mainly just be question and answer. So hopefully you all will have some, uh, some good questions for her. I know I could have plenty, but you've heard me <laughs> ramble on about soaps way too many times. So uh, thank you Kay for coming. One thing about writing is that it's sort of a closeted profession. Everybody thinks it's real glamorous and out there and really cool. It is really cool. It's a cool thing to do. It's a cool thing to have been writing soap operas for all these years. I've loved it. It's my passion, as you will see. I can talk ad nauseum about this topic. Um, however, uh, I will try not to do that. And um, uh, I'm going to give you a little, I'm going to tell you a little story about how I first got into this. Sam kind of gave you a little hint of it, but. Um, what really happened was back in about 19, I think it must have been 1972, it was, well, Nixon was still president before he had resigned, and one evening, I had done my master's thesis on uh, a comparison of Richard Nixon's 1960 and 1968 presidential campaigns. And uh, I'm now, that was at um, what is now Missouri State University, uh, used to be Southwest Missouri State University. That's, so I'd done that master's thesis. And I'm at the University of Wisconsin, and I've done all my work, and I'm, I've done everything except my dissertation. I've done my prelims, and I've, I just have to write this dissertation, but I've become really quite disaffected because I'm in this department of communication arts. I'm in rhetoric and public address, 
and um, they're telling me that I, I have to do a dissertation on someone who is dead. And I have to do that because um, that's the only time that their work is complete. So, you know, if I'm going to analyze somebody's life work, it has to be complete. And um, that's the only way I can criticize the, you know, can really evaluate the body of work. So I've got to find a dead person to write on. This seems odd to me because, you know, I'm in this department that's supposed to study persuasion and that which affects people in their lives. And they say, but you've got to write on the dead person. So I'm having a little trouble with this. I've become very disaffected. And um, one night, I am watching a speech by then President Richard Nixon. It's an important speech. It's getting close to when he's going to resign. Um, uh, nobody knows that yet, but that's what's happening. And um, uh, he's become an embattled president. Then he makes this speech. And I have no idea what the speech was about. Um, but I watched it with a degree of interest because of the fact that I'd done those, my master's thesis on him. The next morning, I'm watching this soap opera. It's a soap opera that is called Where the Heart Is. And it was a soap opera that not very many people watched, but Lynn did, and I did. And frankly, I loved it. I thought it was a great soap opera. But there's this, I'm watching this scene, and I am like enraptured, enraptured by this scene. It involves a mother and a daughter. It was Tracy Brooks Swope and Priscilla Barnes, I believe. And um, they are having an argument. The mother and daughter are having an argument about the fact that the mother has just discovered that the daughter is involved with an older man who is her professor. And the mother is saying all the reasons, you know, trying to guess all the reasons why this is a very bad idea. And the daughter, who is obviously very smitten with this man, um, is explaining to her mother why her mother is wrong, her mother doesn't get it, her mother doesn't understand anything in the way the world is for young people now, she doesn't get it. And I said to my friend, I wonder how many people are having their lives more significantly impacted right now by watching this soap opera and assessing this argument than by the president's speech last night. My friend says to me, Kay, you have been talking about this for years. Write that up. Make that your dissertation proposal. See what they say. So I did that, wrote it up, presented this as a dissertation proposal. I would like to do my PhD dissertation on daytime television serials as mediators of social change. Now, you have to realize, this is 1972. If you are an academic person, you really don't want to admit to anybody that you watch soap operas. You know, you really, it's really, that's sort of a closeted activity still at that time if you're an academic person. Nobody is studying popular culture back then. Nobody even thinks popular culture is important. Nobody even thinks it exists. So, you know, this was a real daring thing. However, this department that I was in at University of Wisconsin-Madison, they were very, very bright people. It was a very prime department at that time, and they realized we're dying because we're supposed to be teaching communication arts and we're studying Aristotelian rhetoric. And you know, this is not an Aristotelian era. I was a pretty good graduate student and when I went to the powers that be and said, look, I would like to do this dissertation, it was like, oh, it was kind of a eureka moment. That's a cool idea. She's a really good graduate student, but they tell me, you're gonna have to go get some people from radio, television, film to be on your committee. We'll have to do this as a bridge thing. And you're gonna have to get to know some of those people. And that was, of course, fine. So I got that dissertation approved and I began to study. At that time, there were 16 soaps on the air. 
I began to study actively nine of them. Of course, I'm a graduate student. It's 1972. Of course, I do not have a, a videotape recorder, nor access to one. I mean, nobody, nobody has a videotape recorder. Um, so I'm audio tape recording these nine shows on Friday. If you're going to tape a show one day, tape it on Friday in terms of soaps. Recording them on Friday, doing content analysis, studying all these uh, messages, you know, pulling out all the messages that seem like they might be pertinent to the acceptance, the promulgation of social change. And I'm well into this process when one of the people from radio, television, film found an article in Parade Magazine uh, um, that uh, this from the Chicago Parade Magazine saying about the article is about William J. Bell who at that time had been writing Days of Our Lives, which was at that time the most uh, popular soap. He'd been writing that for many years already, and he had created this new soap called The Young and the Restless. So he was the only person who had two soaps on the air. Young and Restless was starting to, starting to be a little bit successful. Days of Our Lives was tremendously successful. He lived in Chicago, so uh, my committee member said, go interview this man, and, or see if you can get an interview with this man. So I had started doing my actual viewing of soaps the week that Young and Restless premiered. So I'd watched it from day one. Um, so that was an advantage. I had watched As the World Turned since I was 12, and Bill Bell used to write that show, so that was an advantage. I knew nothing about the business, nothing about protocol. Um, so they had listed where he lived in Chicago. I picked up a phone, I called him, I called the information. I said, you know, do you have a number for this person on East Lakeshore Drive? They said they did. I called him absolutely blind. I told him what I wanted. I introduced myself on the phone. He answered the phone himself. He made an appointment with me. I went and interviewed him. And six months later, I went to work for him. And um, as kind of not really even a script writer yet, as a gopher, he described it. Uh, Girl Friday. Girl Friday, he described it. Uh, uh, that meant gopher in his language. Uh, but um, so that's how I ended up in the soap opera world. Uh, it was a transition from the academic to um, the industry. It was a transition from being a fan to the industry. And um, I, as Sam said, um, wrote um, Young and Restless from 1974, from May of 1974 um, until last November. So it was like 32 and a half years. Um, uh, next week would have been my 33rd anniversary with the show. Um, and now I'm consulting on ABC shows, primarily on my children. That's what I'm doing. And um, I guess I'd sort of like to know uh, what areas of soap opera writing you'd like to hear about? Uh, I guess one other thing Sam kind of wanted me to talk about was the current state of the industry. It's terrible. Um, uh, the, um, the viewer, uh, numbers-wise, in terms of Nielsen ratings, which everyone knows are highly questionable, um, the soap opera uh, viewership is less than 50% of what it was when I started. Uh, back in 1972. Um, the OJ trial was a huge, believe it or not, um, it, you can look at the numbers for daytime television and, and when you get to the time frame of the OJ Simpson trial, that is 
when the decline started. Now, in, back in 1950, a man named Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called The Medium is the Message. It was a, in, the, in the 50s, sometime in the 50s. It was a very famous book. And in that book, he said, network television will not survive forever. Network television will not enjoy the prominence that it has forever. Something is going to happen. It's going to be called, he predicted cable. I don't know if he called it cable, but he said there's going to be all these other servers. There's going to be all these other things that are going to become part of the television industry and network television is going to decline dramatically. And that's going to happen, I think he said, in 15 or 20 years or something like that. So he wrote that in the 50s and it didn't happen. It hadn't happened by the 70s. And so people decided he was wrong. And then the O.J. Simpson trial happened, and that was, of course, the best soap opera on television. Uh, you know, it was better than anything we could write. And people started to watch. And we lost, on The Young and the Restless, two million viewers. One million came back. Um, and we were not alone. All soaps lost a huge chunk of viewers, and some came back, and many didn't. That was the point. That's when it happened. That's when they discovered what Marshall McLuhan said was going to be true. There were all these other available things. Len has a question. Well, I do. Um, there's a microphone. There's a protocol that you must maintain. Just because I'm signing your Um Part of what you're saying, it wasn't just that the country was t transfixed by OJ, which they were. It was that the soaps were preempted for this trial. They were off the air for weeks, sometimes months at a time. In fact, here in Boston, um, this was 95, right? I'm thinking because the actual, 94, 95, because the actual incident was in the spring of 94. So, I think, anyway. That sounds Whatever, weird. anyway. Um, and up here there, it, Channel 7 was still ABC, it's now the NBC. If, uh, C, Channel 7 was CBS, it's now the NBC affiliate. Was, that was that Westinghouse flip at that time. Anyway, and it's owned by Ed Anston, who's like a real, if it bleeds, it leads kind of, of news guy. And they actually, when the networks finally came to their census and went back to the soaps, they were actually on a local basis preempting all of the CBS soaps to run the trial. So it wasn't just that people were so transfixed, they couldn't watch their soap operas, which speaks to a whole other issue about soaps as well. Well, I think that, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know if there were, uh, in some of the earlier hearings on something, and I can't remember, there were two sets of major hearings that also interrupted soaps. The first set, everything was preempted. Um, that these things, I think, preceded the OJ trial. The first that everything was preempted. The second set, the networks made an agreement. Watergate. Was it, oh, the, yeah, the, yeah, the Watergate hearings, the networks made an agreement and they rotated preemptions so that um, they weren't carried on every network every day so that they could still sustain some of the soaps. And that was a more successful, um, in terms of that was a less, that was a less um, uh, deleterious, I had, had le less harmful effect on the soaps than the, than the earlier um, consistent preemption it had. The thing is about any of these situations where soaps are preempted, um, soap opera viewing is a habitual thing. You know, it's a habit. There are people who watch because they've always watched, but they would kind of like to break the habit. If somebody helps them break the habit, like, okay, we're going to preempt your shows, 
you know, if somebody helps them break the habit, you know, for some people, it's kind of a, of a relief. For other people, it's a discovery of other available things. You know, it just, it's that kind of habitual viewing is something that becomes a part of a person's life. And if you break it, if you break that habit, that's a, that was another reason that, you know, it was sampling other things and it was, you know, breaking the habit. Uh, there were a number of factors. I, I, I'm convinced there were a number of factors that caused people to leave. Um, but once, once they do leave, it's often very hard to get them back. You were talking earlier, Lynn, about people that leave just because they get fed up. That's really terrible. Um, but that's yet a different kind of scenario of viewer, um, viewer um, disaffection. Uh, but the world that daytime television is living in now um, is a world that's in, you know, we are sort of, I would view us as an endangered species uh, because of the fact that, despite the fact that, you know, these shows are intensely popular and many of you may know people who are like committed to a soap or more than one soap. Um, you may have parents or friends or even, you know, some of you yourselves may be soap opera viewers or know people who are. But it still is kind of an endangered species just because of the fact that the numbers of people who are so committed are dwindling. And um, that doesn't mean that the people that remain committed are, you know, are, tre are tremendously committed. Sam's thesis uh, very fully explicates the nature of fans and fan communities. And there are many people that point out that one of the things that's fabulous about soap operas, and I believe this because I've experienced it, it is a very interesting kind of fan. I mean, these people are like, they're, they are devotees. They will travel hundreds of miles. There are people that go to these fan club outings that you know have saved every extra dollar they had for a year or two years to go to a fan club event and meet the stars of the soap operas, have a chance to just meet them, just have them sign a piece of paper. It's a very interesting kind of loyalty and commitment. There's a very interesting kind of impact that these kind of shows has, have in people's lives. That's why I believe they're important. I believe they absolutely do affect lives. I've got letters at home of people who say, uh, Lots of different kinds of things. Um, you know, my family was having a lot of problems in this area, and you're doing this story on this subject. I've been watching it. My family's watching it together. It's a very powerful thing. Um, uh, you know, uh, we did a battered women's story once, and we got letters from women who said, "You saved my life." Uh, you know, I was I would have just stuck it out till he killed me, and you know, I realized from your show that. Um, that's what's going to happen. You know, if he doesn't get therapy, he's going to kill me. Uh, so I got to leave. Um, uh, you know, people that say, I had no idea that these were symptoms of diabetes. And I went to my doctor and found out that I've got diabetes. And I found it out because of your show. Um, you know, you get a lot of letters like that. And there's an intense amount of commitment among the fan community. Um, um, Sam in his thesis talks at length about the involvement on the internet now that is generated among the fan community. And in fact, even when people aren't liking their shows, they're liking the conversations about the shows so much that it keeps them with the shows. So we're an, we're an evolving, we're definitely in an evolving medium because of the potential extra applications or the potential, you know, social contacts that exist outside the form itself. But um, that doesn't change the fact that, uh, the, that the medium itself is in some degree of uh, crisis 
and um, what Sam is trying to address in his thesis and what uh, those of us in the industry who love this form and want to see it perpetuate are trying to address is what do we do about that? You know, how do we keep people interested? We know that, um, you know, I, I, I've been, I've learned recently that a lot of, we've always, you know, one of the prime venues of viewers has, has often been women who walked, watched when they were young, went to work, ha, when, they come, when they have their children and they come back home, they, you know, they start watching again their show, whatever their show may have been. Now I understand a lot of those young women are not doing that. They're going to the internet. They're playing internet games. They're, um, uh, they're, you know, they're involved in, in internet pursuits as opposed to television pursuits. Uh, yet another threat to um, one of the bastions uh, that, is, that we feel has kept us alive. So um, I love the genre and I think that um, um, it's a very interesting kind of storytelling because we can be so very deep. Um, uh, you know, we can really, we can spend a lot of time examining a person's motivations, examining a person's psychological situations. We can deal, one of the complaints that everybody knows about soap operas is that nothing happens. And if you watch on a superficial level and only look at plot, in the olden days, that would be true. It's not as true now. Tons of stuff happens. So much stuff happens, you can't follow it. It exhausts you to watch it. It's ridiculous. Um, in the olden days, it would be often a fair complaint. If you're just looking at plot, that you could say nothing happens, except that everything that happens is what happens in the interpersonal relationships among these characters and the inner workings of these relationships and how people are working out their lives. That's what these shows were about. And um, that's what daytime, you know, has sort of slipped away from us. And some of us would like very much to be able to get back. Um, uh, as I've been working on this project, uh, a, a lot of people in, in fan communities have asked me, uh, somehow I had known uh, through, pre through press or elsewhere th that you had been working on a dissertation before you got into soaps. And some of them even knew the title, the, the, the idea of, of soap operas as mediators of social change. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to the research you were working on before you, before you got into soaps. Uh, you know, the idea has always been the soap operas, and it's a, it may perhaps even more true in, in, in European soaps, have, but, but it's also, especially at certain times, been true in American soaps, have actively seen themselves as, as social awareness of, 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 of various uh, current problems, medical issues, et cetera, et cetera. They've seen this as a very important part of their story form. Um, so so that, uh, that, that public service type storylines seem to be uh, one of the things that soaps try to do. And it's also, uh, you know, speaks to the very early ideas of television as an educational forum for the public. And, uh, and so, so I was just interested, as your research come al came along, what you, what you were finding as far as social change. Uh, some of the, and, and as a writer, um, did you often, how often did, did you sit down to, to write those sort, sorts of stories to tell the di diabetes story or to do a story on breast cancer or to do a story? And, and doing it through characters people have known for years so that it's like finding out your friend has breast cancer or your friend has AIDS. Um, and, and I was just curious, since, since your research has been was rooted in that, how that research that you did then transformed into your role as head writer and how you tried to write those sorts of stories. Okay, let me address that in a couple of ways. Um, I'm going to set aside the medical issue for just a moment and talk about the social change issue as separate and distinct from that. Um, 
back in 1972, as I said, you know, you really, if you were an academic, you really didn't want people to know that you watched soaps. It was okay for the college kids, you know, the college students um, in the dorms and stuff. Every, you know, they, they watched them, and that was, that was kind of okay. But by the time you got to the level you were working on your PhD, you really didn't want to acknowledge it if you were, um, if that, you know, if that was, uh, if that was something that you were interested in. That, you know, really, there was no academic acceptance whatsoever of the soap opera as a valid, viable, real, acceptable form of drama. It just wasn't viewed that way. This is schlock, this is garbage, this has no meaning, it has no significance. If you watch it, you're wasting your time. Um, I had been watching soap opera since I was 12 years old and I had never believed that and I had not believed it from the time I was 12 and um, on As the World Turns, this couple this, this family got a divorce. I was growing up in the heart of Kansas. I, from, I was in the, you know, the heart of the Bible Belt. Um, uh, I didn't know any divorced people. I'd never seen anybody get divorced. I, I knew it happened. I knew what it was. I was 12 years old, you know. But um, I'd, I'd never seen anybody get divorced. So on this show, they addressed that issue, and it was painful. It was painful. You saw what happened in this family. You saw how these two children were impacted. You know, you, you, you watched it, you saw it, you saw it hurt, you saw that it was significant, you know. And then you could talk about whether or not it should have happened. But, um, you know, it was, it, it was from that time. And then I also had this grandmother who, and that's how I started watching As the World Turns, from with my grandmother. My mother was not a soap opera viewer. My grandmother was a religious viewer of As the World Turns. So that's how I really started watching. And um, um, there was this character on, on, on As the World Turns who, um, who got pregnant as a you know, single teenage girl. And I don't remember what character it was, but I do remember. Who is it? Ellen. Oh, was it Ellen? Okay, it was Ellen. This is significant. Ellen's a real significant character. Well, you know, we had this, I, I had this cousin in our family who got pregnant, and this was like, you know, she was unmarried, and she was a teenager, and it was the worst thing that could possibly happen. But it impacted my grandmother enormously that this family on As the World Turns was, you know, that the girl was not, you know, they were kind of finding a way to deal with it. It was a terrible, difficult situation, but they were finding a way to deal with it. It was significant to my grandmother, and it became significant in my family. So I had these, like, virtually childhood images that told me that people who said that these shows are just garbage and have no, you know, no redeeming social value were wrong. I had always believed they were wrong, and so presented with an opportunity to view them as a persuasive device, um, that was what moved me in the direction of wanting to write on that topic, because I believed that these shows reached a huge audience, and at that time it was a really huge audience, it was huge numbers of people, but it wasn't a once a week thing, these are people who are tuning in to watch these shows every day. You know, this is a very significant kind of potential for life influence. And I absolutely believed that they were significant. And so that was where the idea of the research came from. You know, looking at these as a, looking at these shows as a persuasive medium. In what way are they persuasive? That was the question that I asked myself. Well, I knew this. Any soap opera that goes out and tries to be avant-garde will not survive. It is not an avant-garde medium. It's not, you know, it's not, it's just not. 
Um, uh, there was some show, I don't remember the name of it, it was a very short live soap where they decided they were going to have some nudity on it. Um, it was an NBC show, I think, and it lasted about three weeks. Um, I don't know if they ever had the nudity or not. It wasn't frontal. Um, I honestly don't remember if they ever had it. I remember it was talked about, and we were all like, oh, you know, what are they thinking? And, and, you know, it was like so inappropriate for the genre. It was ridiculous. So um, I knew, you know, it's not an avant-garde medium. It's not, it's not, it's, the largest single viewership areas are the Midwest, and that's not an avant-garde area, you know, for one thing. That's where I grew up, and it's not avant-garde there. Um, but there is something significant about that, but I was convinced. There's something significant about the way these shows relate to their audiences and the ability that they have to help people see changes that are occurring in the world around them and become, you know, and become more open to those changes, more able to accept those changes, more understanding of those changes. That was the kind of area that I wanted to look at. So I was doing very specific context analysis on the days that I was, um, on the days that I was audio taping, I was going through, you know, and looking for just specific messages. A lot of them, it did have to do with women moving into the, into the workplace, you know, acceptance of women having jobs outside the home. The fact that, you know, this was not only okay, it was probably a good thing. You know, there was a lot, back in the, in the, at that time, in the early 70s, there was a lot of content. It was just within, you know, it was within scenes, it was within family conversations, just little bits of very normal conversation that would advocate a position like that. So, um, uh, so I have always believed, and you know, so from the time that I started writing professionally, an interesting difference between me and my mentor, Bill Bell, is that Bill was just, a st Bill was just, Bill um, was, the, uh, I think, personally, the greatest storyteller of that genre. I mean, he was just a great storyteller. Um, but he didn't, you know, he came at it from a storytelling perspective. So one of the reasons that my collaboration with him worked really well was that as he mentored me and really began to trust me, I was in a position, because of my academic background, to say, Bill, let's really look at what this says. This message is probably not the message we want to convey. You know, look, be he did not instinctively do that. I instinctively did that because that was my training. It was, you know, that, that's what the academic brought, that it was very different from, um, from the approach that he had just as a creative artist. Uh, that, I think, made our collaboration very, very powerful and very significant. So that when we did make decisions, and his wife, Lee Phillip, who is this year getting the Daytime Emmy uh, Lifetime Achievement Award um, because of her involvement with him and his, and his shows, but also her own involvement as a TV personality in Chicago, Lee was a hugely significant social commentary type person um, on local television in Chicago. She was one of the first people that did in-depth studies of rape cases. And The Young and the Restless then did a very famous rape story that was recognized by the New York Times. This is before my time, so you know I, can't, I claim no authorship of that rape story. I do claim some tremendous appreciation of it because it was the first story in which the fact that women who were raped were very often treated as victims this was the first place that that was exposed before any of your nighttime shows addressed that issue. That, was, that issue was dealt with on The Young and the Restless. The New York Times cited us tremendously for that. And um, 
so, so therein lies the way in which um, our storytelling in terms of social issues like that uh, uh, became impacted. Um, we tried very, you know, we did an early, we did an early breast cancer story in which, uh, in which the posture that we chose to take, what, that, you know, we felt, I felt, Lee felt as women, the, that at that time the current popular feeling about breast cancer was, okay, you go in for the biopsy, and if the biopsy is positive, you don't, you know, you don't come out from under the anesthetic, they just cut off your breast. That's what they do. You, you know, this is how it's done. It's mainly male doctors. This is how it's done. We're going to find out if you got it. You got it. Off comes the breast. You know, you're not going to have another chance to think about it. You make your decision now. Sign it off now. The story we did was, I'm not signing it. I'm not signing it. I will not sign it. I want to know. I want to come out from under that. I want to make a decision if I want my breast removed if I have it. That was a story that we did, and it also was, you know, somewhat, it was kind of landmark. And ultimately, she did have breast cancer, and ultimately, she did have the mastectomy. But she had a choice, and that was, then, you know, and that was the significant element that we brought to it. Now, that's the standard procedure, um, unless you ask. You know, you would have to ask to do it the old-fashioned way now. No doctor will do that now. But 30 years ago, 35 years ago, that was, a, you know, that was, that was what they did. That's how it was. And um, so, you know, it's, it's very exciting to have been in an industry where you've had a chance to tell those kinds of stories and where you know that, you know, people have been impacted by them. That's one of the reasons that I want to fight very, very desperately hard to save the medium. Um, and I really, I do not believe that the genre will die because I believe that it is absolutely human nature to want to know what happens next. I think that's human nature. And so I think that the serial format in and of itself will survive. I think that there are a lot of venues that are doing what we should be doing in daytime better than we're doing it. I think a lot of reality television is doing it better. I think a lot of nighttime television is doing it better because they are, because they have the, they have the awareness that when you have that great moment that maybe no words need to be spoken. Maybe no words need to be spoken. The story is going to be told by the way these people look at each other and by the way you take your pictures and maybe by what's not said. And it's not going to be, you know, some crazy plot thing. It's just there in the way they look at each other. Like, um, Nighttime is doing that very well now. Some shows are doing that extraordinarily well. Um, uh, reality shows are doing some of the... Uh, some of the telling of sequential stories, uh, you know, teasing what's going to happen next without really letting you know. Some of the reality shows, Sam, Sam thinks Survivor is probably the, the, I, I, is probably the best at this, and they probably are because they tape everything before they put their reality show together. <laughs> some question whether that's reality, but, uh, uh, but, but you know, the, get, doing that, they have the opportunity to decide exactly how they want the reality to unfold. Uh, so, um, uh, so you know, and, and, and the first season I was very hooked on Survivor, and then I decided that I could not afford to become addicted to Survivor, so I haven't really been watching it since, but they, they do do that well. So, um, what would you like me to talk about? Um. Yeah, I just to say, actually, I really am not very familiar with soaps at all. I think because I was like, I went to... 
Well, never mind about why I wasn't into soaps because my mom worked and I went to daytime, whatever. I mean, I mean, I wasn't at home, right? So then right. I don't really know much about it. So I mean, but but I am interested in sort of um, playwriting because I, I I did some theater and I took classes in playwriting. And I just actually just wanted I have two questions. One is just the creative process of like how is the genre different and how, and, and in terms of like the creative process and how do you come up with a story for that genre that's different than network television or other kinds of television. And my other question is actually about how it's positioned within sort of like television generally because I mean there's always sort of the stigma that we just talked about and you just mentioned um, of the fact that it's kind of like I mean whether it's true or not but that it's like you know lesser than other forms and you have these like these actors who are continually wanting to I mean I don't really know if all of them wanted to leave that's my that's my feeling that that's a stereotype that they want to go on to bigger and brighter things and I don't know if that's true for the writers as well but sort of how how does that work into sort of the 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 creative process and the um, and I, don't, I don't know like your your like ego or something I don't know something like uh, okay those are really really interesting questions let me see if I can uh, uh, kind of figure out how how to best to address those um, the creative process um, how does it differ from playwriting how is it similar to playwriting um, Well, the creative process in and of itself, Lynn probably is a better person to answer that question because Lynn writes plays um, and Lynn's very into soap operas. So do you, do you want to sure. talk about that, Lynn? I'll take a whack at it. Um, oh. oh, yes, yes, oh, sure. Oh, hi. Um, well, I mean, the short answer is the play has a beginning. I mean, I write very small plays. I write 10-minute plays. And there's still an arc. You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. And some resolution. I actually very much like to end my plays with a question mark where you're not quite sure. I mean, there's, you're not unsatisfied. You're not going, ah, but, you know, there's still open questions. Um, you know, soap opera is described as world without, worlds without end. So, you know, K, you know, uh, World Turns is 51 years old. Guiding Light's 70 years old. Um, Young and Restless is 34. Uh, four. So these, and you, have you got any original characters from? Uh, is Catherine Chancellor yeah. uh, um, was. Oh, uh, Jeannie. Yeah, yeah. Jeannie Cooper, <laughs> Catherine Chancellor, the character of Catherine Chancellor, played by Jeannie Cooper, has been there since the beginning. Okay. Um, and on uh, uh, World Turns, Helen Wagner, who uttered the first lines, has been playing this role almost continuously, there are a couple of breaks, for 51 years. So when it's being done well, which is, as Kay points out, not as much as it ought to be now, I mean, I'm trying to think back to, on World Turns, um, Kim, two characters, Kim Hughes and Susan Stewart, have feuds going back 30 years to, to Dan and, and, and the writers don't always remember that, but the actors remember that. And you'll see these two actors, you know, so they'll, they'll throw in something about what happened or they'll act in a certain way with each other that those of us who remember what happened 30 years ago, okay, you know, uh, that, uh, that Marie and Kim, the actors remembered this. So it, it's open. I mean, it, it's the biggest difference is it's open, and when you get to the end of an episode, you're, okay, what's going to happen tomorrow? 
I have to find out what's going to happen tomorrow. And that's just inherently different from a play, which has to have a big. Are these nighttime shows? The primetime soaps? Sure. They're doing, Kay and I have talked about this, they are doing a frighteningly good job at character. I think the biggest thing to understand about soaps is that they're about character. They are, you watch them not for events, not for plot, but because you want to know what's going to happen to those people. Um, and good soap opera writing is largely good dialogue delivered by good actors who make you believe that, that it, you know, who make it real and you are engaged with them. So you want to know it. The, I mean, today, for instance, we haven't, none of us has watched the, the recording yet. It's KCU's last day before he goes to jail. Now, we all know the actor is leaving to go try his luck in Hollywood, but the character is leaving. And the, yesterday's show with his girlfriend who saying, no, I don't want to go to college. I want to wait for you. It's just conversation. It's really just conversation about stuff that matters in people's lives. And that's when I'm happiest with a soap opera. I'm pretty sure that's when Kay's happiest with a soap opera. <laughs> Sam's happiest with a soap opera. And what concerns all of us is that the people in charge of the checkbook don't understand that. Um, so I can't speak to writing a soap opera. I was telling Kay earlier, I, I could write dialogue. I could probably do a breakdown. But not in a million years could I do a head writer, because I don't think that way, because my storytelling is contained. Well, I think that's one of the cases you, you mentioned. I think that one of the main things that stands against a soap opera is its production values uh, compared to a primetime show. It doesn't have the budget to have the look of a primetime show. So the question is, in theory, what can soaps do better? And dialogue is one thing, because the soaps can't do explosions or gunfights or all these sorts of things. Right, they, they, can, they do them, but they can't do them as well as a primetime show. But good dialogue, close-ups on characters' faces, they're the stereotype of what a soap is, but it's also tr really what soaps do best. Because you have to think about what sets them aside from a primetime show it isn't just that they only come on, that the primetime shows only come on once a week and soaps come on every day. The other is that primetime shows, even if they're serialized, still have a season. And soap operas, there is no season. It's uh, there's there's no end, right? I mean, there's really no off. There's no off point. Maybe two times a year, there's like maybe Christmas Day. I don't think that the soaps. Well, and they might, yeah. There's CBS. It's March Madness, two days in March. Yeah. And the and the opening rounds of the U.S. Open in, in right. August and early September. So that that is creates a very if you if you look at soap operas as a character character based genre instead of a plot based genre, then what makes the difference? is that relationship with people. Uh, one of my favorite stories is my high school English teacher told me she went to see her, her mother one day and her mother was on the phone with her, her aunt and said, um, I've been, I can't believe what happened to Joe uh, that, and, and, uh, and started describing all the things that have been happening in this person's life and, you know, if, and, and she thought it was somebody from the community because they were talking about it in that way. Of course, eventually realized it was the character on the soap opera, but that's the type of relation, the character-based relationship that soap operas engender that primetime shows can't. 
the ability to get to know a person and then watch what happens to them on a daily basis and watch it unfold in real time. And the fact that the actors, if they play the same role for decades, you watch them age in real time alongside you uh, creates a much different uh, environment to watch a show and a much different relationship with that character than you would have in any other, in any other form. But, but what your question gets at that nobody has quite addressed, and, uh, and I was hoping Kay would, is the actual production process of what it takes to put together a soap opera is so much different than a primetime show because there's so much more material. The the way the writing crew puts it together, the way the, way the writing staff puts it together, the the size of the writing the writing staff to, to put out five shows a week versus 22 episodes a year uh, is much different. And, and so I was wondering, as far as I know, you probably don't have exact numbers, but how many people it takes to put together a soap opera, how, how it's filmed, and the fact that I, I'm assuming there aren't a lot of takes uh, on, on most shows. Just just that sort of broad overview for anyone who's never watched a soap opera. How's the production different from what you envision of a prime time, from a primetime show? Um, well, uh, during the time that I was at Restless, um, most of the time we had ten writers. Uh, sometimes it would be, uh, that, and that's not a very big, that's not a big, uh, that's not a big staff for a, for, for a, uh, for a daytime hour show. Um, we had, uh, uh, we had two head writers, we had um, uh, four or five breakdown writers. Uh, those are the people that work most directly with the head writers and then you decide what's going to be in an episode and then the breakdown writers write it up. Uh, sometimes they're called outline writers, but it's not really an outline. It's, but it is really, a, it's not an outline in the terms that you might think of an outline. It's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, in our case, it was a very uh, highly thought out structure. Uh, for the episode, um, uh, completed by a writer that would then go to another writer to write the script, and then the, and then the scripts would all come back to me for editing. Uh, that's how how we were doing it when I was on when I was on Young and Restless, and and, and geographically dispersed as I think geographically dispersed. Absolutely, I was in Chicago. We had writers in Chicago. We had writers in Hawaii. We had writers in New York. We had writers in. Uh, well, at one point, Austin, Texas, uh, uh, we had writers in, some in California where the show is produced, and uh, we had um, uh, some in um, uh, um, Arizona. Um, and, um, and then a couple other writers besides me were in Chicago. So we were all spread out. Uh, we worked primarily by, you know, phone conferencing. Uh, that's how we pulled it all together. It got easier. We've been doing this for years, years and years and years, uh, because of the fact that um, uh, Bill Bell's original place of living was in Chicago. That's, he, he lived in Chicago when I got the job. Later moved to Los Angeles, but never asked me to move to Los Angeles. So there'd always been kind of a Chicago base for the show. So we'd always had to work in this, you know, kind of spread out format. And now it's pretty easy because a lot of people do that with the internet and you know ease of communication. Um, but it's uh, but we've been we've been doing it we've been doing it really really for years. Um, so the writers of the writers that I worked with, there's a gentleman named Eric Frywald that I have worked with since. The show since it's probably it's let's say 1980 that I've met twice. 
you know, often I've talked to him, you know, I'm very close with this man, I've had lengthy phone conversations, we've planned episodes together, you know, um, uh, I called him from the hospital when I was in labor with my first child, um, but I've only met him like twice in all those years, uh, physically met him. Um, uh, in terms of the production, um, when I first started this, this, this job years ago, we did what was called live on tape. Um, Restless was never, was never actually a live show. Many soaps were the older ones. Restless was always on tape, but it was called live on tape. So the show was read like once in the afternoon in order. It was a half hour at the time. And then the next day, they would tape that show. The next morning, they'd start taping that show. They'd tape it in order, and they'd tape it in a day. When the shows went to an hour, that didn't mean you got an extra day to tape the show. That just meant you had to tape twice as much material in a day. One day, that's what you get to tape a soap opera episode. One day. We do 250 shows a year. We tape it in about 250 days. Um, yes, Lynn? I was just going to, um, I actually don't need the mic. Um, I think, this woman for me, I think what you would like to know is, as a head writer, how are you laying out a story for, say, six months? Um, what, are you, what, are you, what are you creating that you're giving to the breakdown, right? Like, what are your considerations? I mean, maybe because you haven't written nighttime. Can I speak to those differences? But how are the considerations for the, this, like, continuous story different than, um, like, a season of 24 or something? Uh, okay. Um, well, the ways in which, the, the principal way in which they are different is the same, is, you know, is the same as the principal way in which it's different if you're talking about writing anything that has an end. Because you just, you know, you're not looking to the end, you're looking to what is the next phase of the story. Now, you do tell stories that you know are going to have, that are going to have an end. You know, within the show, there are story segments, story lines that are going to have an end. So, um, as you're trying to lay out a show, for um, say three to six months, um, in the long-term projection that I recently that I that I that I recently did, um, what I I tried to look at the show from where it stands and uh, from where it stood right now at that point that I started to write this, and to figure out okay where should we be. With these, with, with these major story threads, with these major characters, by the beginning of November sweeps. So we're talking, say, a period of six months. You know, how, what, what kind of stories are we going to tell between where we are now, where should we be by the beginning of November sweeps? Ideally, by the beginning of November sweeps, where you'd like to be is just ready to take off on, on, their, on the conclusions of some of your story threads. Because you'd like to, you know, be playing very powerful stuff in November sweeps. So, you know, how can you sustain the story? That was the question that, that, you know, that we posed. This particular show that I'm working on now has had everything that you could possibly imagine in terms of an event has happened recently. There's been, um, there's been baby swaps, there's been a serial killer, there's been baby kidnappings, there's been um, uh, all just all manner of violence and mayhem has been going on. And so you, th you know, so, so, you, so you, you're looking at this and you're kind of trying to figure out, you know, what, what should I do? You know, this isn't working, the ratings are terrible. What should I do? And my personal theory is, okay, what we need to do is 
is take go from this point where we are, that, where, there's, where there's been all this mayhem, try to take these characters and really just work with these characters and these relationships to get us to new story points to break by by the beginning of November, so that we'll have some dramatic events, you know, some uh, more cataclysmic type events to occur in November. Right now, the viewers need to rest. They got to be exhausted. I'm exhausted watching the show. All this stuff is happening incessantly. Um, uh, you know, it's like in a nighttime show, you can have a lot of plot, even if it's like you know more of a serialized kind of show, and if, even if it's largely character oriented, you can have a lot more stuff happen. Like on Grey's Anatomy, you can have that explosion thing that's going to play out over two weeks, um, and you know, and then a couple weeks after that, you can have some other major event because that show is only going to air once a week, or sometimes they double it up and everything. But basically, it's going to air once a week. It's not that same. If you try to play that same kind of action every day in a daytime show. You know, A, there's not, enough, there's not enough story. You know, you're going to run out of story and you're going to start repeating yourself and nobody's going to watch because they don't care. It's just going to be some more events happening. Who cares what it's going to be? The secret to daytime is you have to care about these people. You have to feel about them like they're important to you, like you've been watching them for, you know, like there's something about them that makes you want to know what's going to happen in their lives. You have to care about them as people. And then you can put them in a story context and, and, and you know that you're concerned about these, that you want to know what's going to happen in the story because you want to know what's going to happen to these people, these characters, these relationships. That's the only way you can really sustain daytime because it's 250 episodes. It's 250 episodes a year. Um, so what's different, I think, is um, uh, what's different, from my point of view, what's different is you really have to look at this as a character-based medium and you have to assess what are we going to do with these characters before we get and before we get to the next, how do we build this? How do we keep people involved? How do we make them care about this young couple, say, or this older couple, say? How do we make them care until we get to an event that's going to challenge this relationship and make us wonder, oh my gosh, you know, they fought their way back from all this stuff. I really care about them now, and now they're going to have to face this. Oh, what's going to happen? And then, you know, people will watch your story. That's what I think. Uh, I just go along with what you said. It seems like because it is so character-based and it's like the fans are kind of like the writers in such a way because they're... Uh, whatever. But like you have these nighttime shows where you have like these, like now you have these like auteurs like J.J. Abrams and Lost and stuff and like, and like their individual voice is like a really big part of the show and, and it's really associated with what's happening. But would you say that because like soaps are like ongoing forever that there's like less of this need to have like some, some guy who's really the, the big man behind the scenes, just one person, like one voice? Or is it just more about this like because the characters are more important, it's about more about like a generic writer, not a generic writer's voice, I'm sorry, that's not what I meant, but more of a sort of like a able to be part of the whole, you know. That's a real, this, first of all, this is a really interesting question because there are famous writers, famous writers who have not been able to survive as soap opera writers. Some famous playwrights. Um, who am I thinking of? Uh, somebody mentioned a play, um, David mentioned a play, by Mamet. Mamet could not survive as a soap opera writer. He, and he tried it at some point in time. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, Michael Weller uh, could not survive as a soap opera writer. Michael Weller would be more likely than Mamet. Um, but um, uh, um, it's <laughs> um, 
I have worked with writers who were, you know, I've worked with some, with some very good writers, but you, you know, you kind of have to be, you're exactly right. If you're, the ego factor has to be right because there are people that are very uncomfortable with, but if I write it this way, it sounds like everybody else on the team. That's the idea. You know, it, what's supposed to sound like, it's supposed to sound like the show. It's supposed to sound, you know, you X, Y, your writer X is supposed to sound like writer Y, it's supposed to sound like writer Z. When I get those scripts, they should all sound like the same person. The characters should all sound the same. It's, it is, co it's, um, it's mutual authorship. It's, uh, it's, uh, um, now that's like the script writing level and, 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 and really I suppose at the breakdown level too. Um, there are some, there have been some iconic voices in, in daytime. Bill Bell, my mentor, was one of those. Agnes Nixon, um, uh, in, in my, you know, the, Agnes Nixon and Bill Bell were both mentored by Erna Phillips, who many regard as the creator of the soap opera genre. I regard her that way. And those are probably the three greatest voices ever in the history of daytime. And those people created the voice for their shows. One of the sadnesses is that those voices are not heard now. Um, uh, they just aren't. Um, Agnes is Agnes is still is still living and still functioning. Some with her shows, and sometimes she gets things through. I, uh, um, but, but in general, um, you know, Bill Bill is gone, and all of Bill's proteges are gone. Um, so other people are handling that show, and it's a different voice. Um, uh, Bill's son Bradley writes, uh, is head writer and executive producer of The Bold and the Beautiful. Um, uh, Bill created that show to give to Bradley, and that show is pretty much Bradley's voice. Whatever you think of it, it's pretty much Bradley's voice. And it's, you know, it's an interesting show. It's a different show. Uh, it's a flashy show. Um, um, but that's, he's the one person left who still primarily has control of the show. And I don't know how long that's going to last. The minute somebody wants to turn it to an hour, that'll be gone, I can tell you that. Um, but he may never let that happen. It's a half hour now, it's the only half hour left. Um, so you're right in that um, at now, in this era, in the new era, there are no longer any more of these shows created by an icon, the writer's an icon, the show is the writer's voice, the show is the writer's creation. I view that as a huge loss. But, um, that, but, that, but you're, it's, it's now much more a corporate America kind of thing. Sony has their voice, the networks have their voice, um, uh, Disney has their voice, and, um, and, and PNG has their voice. And if you're a head writer, you've got to listen to all these people. Um, and um, some of them are much more um, absolute in whether they have control or the writer has control or the executive producer has control. There's lots of control issues in the, in the, in the genre now. Um, but um, uh, there, there aren't any great iconic voices left like have been able to survive more in, in, in nighttime. It's um, uh, um, just the way it is. I think because, because you know, daytime has to, you know, it, because it is every day and it has to be such a business and it's not, you know, it's not a very successful business right now. If suddenly the numbers would pop back up and we'd start making all this money again, I bet you Sony and CBS and everybody that's, you know, everybody that's concerned economically in a business sense, I bet they'd back right off. But that's not going to happen with the, you know, in the in the current television economics. 
Well, one thing you point out is that uh, I mean, one of the major differences as well is if you're a creator of a show that's only going to last a few seasons, then you can be the auteur of that show in a way that Erna Phillips created as the world turns 51 years ago. Um, even if she had remained at that show for the rest of her life, um, someone would have had it. I mean, there was no way that she could be the permanent auteur, just like Bill right. Bell stayed with the show he created for his whole career, you know, for, for a good length of time and stayed involved with that show, but that show is going to, you know, has, has outlived him. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's what sets the genre apart. I think one of the differences, though, is this, the soap operas have such deep histories that the industry of soap opera has a revolving door mentality of the writers. So that, you know, it's not that big of a deal to do a short stint as a head writer on one show for a few years, then you become the head writer. Uh, ABC steals you away from the show that you did at CBS, and you come onto that show, and you have a lot of experience in soap opera, but now you're on a completely new show with a whole other 40-year history, and you don't know that 40-year history, but you're in, now the head writer and the head creator. And from the fans' perspective, the fans are saying, wait a minute, we know all these characters way better than the people who are the writers of the show. That's a troubling, that's troubling to me. Why is the first job requirement isn't an intense knowledge of the history of the show and the characters on the show is what the fans are often asking. You know, that should be like the prerequisite. You can't start writing this show until you've, you've studied really hard and watched a lot of tapes and what, you know, really know the history of that show because how can you write it? And I want to just follow up on exactly the question that you're asking because it ties into the one I was going to ask. Um, I don't want to be a soap opera writer, but if I did want to be a soap opera writer, how does somebody break into this industry? How, where are the, and I ask because you just said it, revolving door. You know, Megan McTavish just gets fired from all my kids. She'll turn up somewhere else. Uh, and it's the same, and this has been going on 15 years, at least 15 years. Who, other than Hogan Sheffer, who is the last new head writer who came in. I mean, who, where are the head writers coming from? Because the problem isn't the breakdown writers, the problem isn't the script writers, the problem is the vision at the top. Well, um, Lynn's a nighttime writer. Lynn Latham. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Your successor. Yeah. Young and Restless. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they pulled her in from nighttime. Um, oh, they did try Black and Stern uh, World Turns back in... Uh, 96, they brought them in from nighttime too for Falcon Crest. That's right. That was a disaster. Um, <laughs> so it's hard, you know, really the way that the industry needs to be is that, you know, it, it, because of the nature of the genre, it needs to have a mentoring system. Like, you know, I can tell you right now, had I stayed at Young and Restless, who my successor would have been. There is no question. Now, fortunately, my successor has survived. So the my person that I would pick as my successor has survived so far. She's still there. That's a really good thing. Um, but whether or not she's going, whether she can, even, whether she can stick it out, whether she's going to survive, I don't know. Um, uh, she's the only person from um, my tenure that was mentored by me who is still there. Uh, but really, what it should be is that you know, um, Bill Bell mentors Kay Alden and Jack Smith, and Kay Alden and Jack Smith mentor the next generation, and those people you know move into the move into the positions either at the show they were on or in the daytime industry. Um, that's ideally how it should be, and that's how it's been in the past. But you know now, 
because of the degree of desperation, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons that one of the reasons that that my team and I eventually were all disseminated was because um, uh, the f of the fact that we had over a hundred years of experience writing that show. And, you know, somebody looks at this and says, okay, well, they're still the number one show, but their numbers are way down, and there ought to be all those viewers out there that somebody else could get. So let's let, you know, these people must be dinosaurs. They've been there 100 years. Uh, I mean, they have more than 100 years of experience on that show. So um, I don't, you know, so let's get them out and move in new people. Um, the new people have, their ratings are now lower than when we left. But... Um, that was the thinking, and that's been kind of the thinking throughout the, you know, th throughout a lot of the industry. Um, uh, the um, hallowedness of the and being revered. Be I mean, Young I mean, Restless was revered because we were the only show that had that kind of stability, the only one. Nobody else had that, and that was remarkable. And people would talk about that, and then very suddenly there was this attitudinal shift. I think because of the predominance of um, the business model, Sony and CBS, and, and the belief that um, there must be viewers out there and new a new voice should be able to get them. And maybe they will. You know, I, I don't know. Um, uh, things are very different now. It's a different audience. I've been trying to watch what my 18-year-old son watches um, uh, to get a feel for, okay, you know, what are 18-year-olds watching? Well, he watches Entourage, um, and um, I've only watched it once. I, you know, and it's kind of interesting. But and he watches Scrubs, um, and you know, they're they're good shows, but they're not the fabric of they're not the fabric of daytime. I don't think. But do they need to be? You know, do I need to figure out somehow some way to adapt what I write to? a different kind of viewing mentality. This is the video game generation. I never played video games. Their minds were, you know, their eyes, your guys, you, your eyes move more quickly than mine. Your brains move more quickly than mine. You know, um, the General Hospital, General Hospital now has a nighttime spinoff on SoapNet. And it's, and, it's, and it's being written by the person that's writing General Hospital. And the spinoff is called, it's a, this is experimental, it's called Night Shift. And Night Shift, uh, Night Shift has, in, in its hour, General Hospital in its hour has about, usually about probably 35 scenes. Um, now, this is pretty fast-paced for a soap opera. That's, I mean, that's a lot of scenes in, in an hour, especially when you consider how much time is pulled out by the network and everything. And a, a daytime hour is really about 40 minutes, I think. Um, it's less on Young and Restless. But um, so uh, a nighttime hour, so, so on the nighttime, on night shift, they're doing 65 scenes in the hour. That's, you know, almost twice as many as their daytime show. So that show is going to have a whole different feel to it. It's going to have a whole different pace. Whether we're going to like it or not going to like it, you know, maybe if, a, if we can get a younger audience to watch it, it will be more comfortable for the younger audience. And maybe that will, you know, blend the younger audience back into the parent show. I don't know. It's a fascinating experiment. Um, I do know that one thing we need in my segment of the industry is a lot of experimentation to figure out what works. Um. Uh, one thing to, to, to 
pick back up on some, a point you made earlier uh, about the social change aspect of soaps again. I think it's interesting how the idea of a character-driven show and the idea of a plot-driven show often butt head-to-head. -head. And not to pick on all my children, but the, the more recent example a lot of fans seemed outraged by was um, after Roe v. Wade, um, All My Children was the first show after Roe v. Wade to have an abortion storyline. Um, and had the character uh, of Erica Kane, uh, played by the famous soap actress Susan Lucci, um, to, to, get, to get an abortion. And then decades later, the storyline is returned to and this completely outlandish idea that the doctor somehow defied scientific ability to save the fetus and put it in his wife, who was unable to have children, by the way, and that that child was then born and was actually an adult now. Um, and of course, you know, so, so the idea was, oh, we'll play off our history in an, interest, in an interesting way and we'll, we'll surprise the long-term viewers with this, this sort of mentality. Of course, this, the, you know, maybe some people, I guess, had to be shocked when long-time viewers were extremely pissed off at the idea that this groundbreaking social change storyline that happened in the early 70s, in 73, I guess it was, um, that had been completely reversed and trivialized and turned into a plot point and one of the most ridiculous, inane, stereotypical soap ideas possible, the idea of the ludicrous soap storyline taken to an extreme that you, could, that you could take a fetus and put it into someone who wasn't able to have children and that, that fetus would magically uh, pop out at the end of the day or at the end of the nine months, whatever. Um, see, you know, and, and fans were, were livid and I'm assuming that, that you know, that ABC had, I mean, I guess they had to be surprised by that response because they, somebody had to have thought that was a good idea uh, to go through with that storyline in the first place. But again, that's the idea of not understanding the character-driven aspect of soaps and thinking, oh, you know, what we'll do is shock them and, and play on history in this way and that'll draw in viewers, but I don't think, I think that backfired. That one definitely hugely backfired. It hugely backfired. I mean, um, uh, that is that particular storyline and the subsequent storyline in which the same doctor who had conduct, who had done who had done the the transplant of the embryo was buried alive and subsequently died. Um, those two storylines, told within the same year, were you know crushing for this. For I mean, they were just they were just crushing. They weren't the most ludicrous story. They they weren't the most ludicrous stories ever told on daytime television. Uh, Lynn's questioning that. They were up there. They were up there. But you know, but the but the the most fa the fascinating thing I think, and I really you know I really. I, I've, I've not ever been, I'm working on all my children now, so of course I know I'm an all my children viewer and I've studied the history and, you know, and I, and I, and I, and I speaking to your question, uh, yes, I have spent six months now, you know, studying the history of this show, studying the characters, and I frankly feel I know them very well and would love to be writing for them, but uh, I'm, you know, on a more day-to-day uh, -day basis than I am, but um, uh, to bring them back to what I think they ought to be, but, um, uh, you know, one of the first things I did when I, when I started consulting was, one of the first things I did was I tried to assess, is there any way to undo this? Is there any way to undo it? Is there any way to undo it? You know, Baron um, um, did that story from all those years ago and brought this character in. Can I undo it now? I ultimately decided, 
it was not a good idea to try to undo it. It would merely, it would, you know, it would, it would bring the story back to life again. It would remind people of how angry they were. Um, uh, you could only, it's, it was, the way in which it was undone was ludicrous. You could only undo it again in an even more ludicrous manner, I thought. Um, although you could just say, you know what, that was all a lie. But, but um, and I did, I did go so far as to say, because I think um, all my children is very good about doing DNA. <coughs> One life to live so often doesn't do DNA. You know, like they had this character dead for months and nobody, the body's right there. Okay, it's a burned up body, but the body's right there. Nobody ever thinks to do any DNA. So for months they've got this body, this, uh, you know, this, this, they have this one person they think is dead, and they have this other person that's really badly burned, and they've got him all wrapped up in the hospital for months. And nobody ever does DNA on this dead person. They find this metal. You know, there's been an explosion. There's been a terrible fire. There are bodies everywhere. And um, uh, they find among the rubble this metal that had belonged to this character that they believed to be dead. So they conclude he's dead. Everybody's devastated. He's dead. Uh, now, we know that this other guy over there is all wrapped up. Uh, but, it, and, you know, I mean, it fascinated me. It fascinated me that they could get by in this day and age with think, you know, without ever saying someone should do DNA. Uh, but they never did. They, uh, but I, but and all my children are very good about doing DNA because I was thinking, you know, okay, if they forgot to do DNA, I just, you know, we could, it was just a mistake. It was just a lie. That guy was a liar. He's dead now. And um, this is not, this is not Erica's child after all, but I'm pretty sure they did. I'm, I know I checked it out and I think they did do. They did do DNA, so I figured it was best to let it go. But it, you know, but it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing if you're in this genre and you like this genre, you know, because it's like, if you know, had I, had I, had I been there, I would have been so freaked and so depressed that they're throwing out this story. Even though, you know, even if, you know, even, even if I was like a newer writer, I know how important it is. I just, I can't imagine how it went through these rooms and how people signed off on it. And some people have even admitted to me that they think it was a mistake to sign off on it. Yeah, it was. But how did it, you know, how did it get that far? I just don't even understand it. But it did. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting in the wrong seat. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's an abomination. I, I haven't watched ki all my kids in years, and it re it's reverberating all over the, the, the soap uh, fandom. But it is possible to use the soap's history and to do it beautifully and to even change it. And we, I think we talked before about, I don't think you probably, I think you were probably too young to actually see this, but uh, on, all, on uh, World Turns when the Franny and Sabrina story, uh, where they turned out what was supposed to have been a, a stillbirth, which is a lot different than a first trimester abortion, but a, st <laughs> a stillbirth turned out not to have been a stillbirth, and this was the, the dual role that Julianne Moore got an Emmy for. And, and Doug Marlin, who I put up there with yeah. Bill Bell, Aggie Nixon, and, and yeah, Ernest Phillips, did it so meticulously and so that every day he thought through every single detail. How am I going to do this? How, is the audience going to buy it? Is anybody or any viewers going to be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute? I mean, this is a guy if the character wasn't around for a couple of days, 
somebody would mention it in dialogue that they were, you know, if the actor was off for a few days. And he always wanted it to make sense because the viewers, he never underestimated the intelligence of the viewers and what lies at the heart of everything we've been talking about since 10 o'clock this well, talking about in person since 10 o'clock this morning, but talking with Sam about over the past year, year and a half, is the viewers are not just a commodity. On one sense, yes, we are the commodity that's delivered via the story to the advertisers. But I think more than any other genre, soap opera viewers have come to be regarded as just people who feed any line of BS that any executive signs off on because so it's enormously frustrating. And I think maybe if you want to talk, I know Sam and Kay both talked a little bit this morning in, in uh, your consultation, we're not calling it a defense, uh, about how f the powers that be or the idiots in charge or whatever <laughs> we're going to call them these days are, are look at their longtime viewers and, and push the envelope with them and how far can they go and how far are they willing to, to risk losing them because they are with this kind of nonsense. So you, uh, I think we've all talked a little bit about that this morning. So if you would maybe follow up on that a little, you know, how are these people looking at their audience? How is Brian Franz, you, you know, the guy you work for, how does he look at the audience and the viewers? Brian is interesting. Was, I think Brian is more respectful of uh, of the of the of the audience than you might than you might expect. Not his right. That's um, what? I said that's not the rep he's got. On well, it's interesting because he'll sign off on crazy stuff. You know, I think um, uh, um, he has a great belief that if. He has a great belief, and I think that this is, belief has betrayed him during the course of this last year. He has a great belief that if a writer really pitches something hard and really believes in it, they will tell it well, and you know, as an executive, he should not stand in their way. That really is a, that really is a premise of his, or that really is a premise that he's had. Um, and like I said, uh, I, I, I don't think that that, um, I don't think that that served him well in, in this particular, in this particular, um, in this particular situation. Um, uh, you know, the, net, the network executives are, they're, they're, they're very busy people. The ones who are more involved um, read a great deal of material and um, I don't know, it's a, it's a uh, um, I don't, I, I don't think that they, I don't think that the network executives intend to trivialize the audience, but I think that obviously they don't, um, they don't, they don't have appropriate respect for the audience. Now, ABC spends a ton of money on research. They spend a ton of money on research. They have a research agency that they use. They do use focus groups uh, a lot, but they're not very big focus groups, you know. And then, you know, I find myself thinking, okay, they had 40 people. In you know they had 40 people in some location, uh, usually just like one location, maybe two, uh, that are responding to this to the you know that 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 they meet with, and then those 40 people are making. It certainly again doesn't seem to me nearly as valid a group to look at as the internet response people. Um, 
they may feel that these are that 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 the that the focus group people that they select are more representative, uh, you know, of the general viewing audience. It's easier for them to control. It's, it's easier for them to control. But I can tell you this: the way the research looks, you certainly wouldn't think they're controlling it. You know, I mean, the research is terrible. It's terrible. It, you know, there's that um, uh, that. There, there are so many people on this show that nobody likes or ever wants to see again. There's a, you know, on, on, I've only seen the research on all my children, but, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of, there's, there's, everybody's, everybody's like factor is down from what it used to be, uh, from what it was a year ago. Um, uh, now this research is, they'll be doing research again soon, I assume. So this research is some, is some months old, but. Um, there's nothing in this research for them to for them for them to for them to feel good about. Um, um, the same thing is true of a lot of the of a lot of the internet of a lot of the internet responses. They and the networks inherently, I think, don't trust the internet responses. I know they view them as very skewed and very much a a pretty select group of the audience. I self-selected, of course. I I think that you know. I think that there are arguments to be made for the nature of that self-selection. That's one of the things that Sam has tried to do in his thesis, and I think it's done very effectively. Um, but again, it's going to be very difficult to convince your current network person of the validity of those network of those um, internet kinds of responses because it's not, you know, they are so geared to believe in the Nielsen numbers as truth, and um, uh, that's just a huge a huge thing to overcome. The industry's been controlled by the Nielsen ratings for such a long time, and I don't really see an end to that. Um, um, everybody seems to sort of live and die by those, by those numbers, and I don't, know, I don't know how to get beyond that. I think that the increasing decline of network television may suggest that um, other means of Evaluation besides Nielsen <coughs> have to come into play, but um, you know. But now, of course, Nielsen evaluates Fox, and Nielsen evaluates the WB, and Nielsen, or which is not the WB anymore, I know, but whatever. <coughs> All of those shows are still evaluated by the Nielsens, and you know, if somebody moves up as the networks move down, that's just a feather in their cap. So. It's a mystery, and you know, it, it's a it's it's a it's a mystery to me. Um, at, within the next five to ten years, there's going to be a huge uh, there, there's going to be a huge change in how television how how the television medium is served anyway. There's going to be much more broadband. There's going to be much more on demand. It's not going to look like it does now. So, you know, really, I believe this to be true. Within the next five to ten years, the networks are I don't think are even going to be serving the function of scheduling shows because everybody's because the vast majority of television will be on demand. I don't know exactly how Nielsen will function in that environment because they've you know functioned uh, largely in relation to scheduling. But I know that's not true anymore. They have their methods of they evaluate TiVo, they evaluate SoapNet, they evaluate they add them all up some way, but. Um, uh, that's right. You'd think. You'd think. But I do think that that's the wave of the future. Um, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, and I think that in that wave of the future, the soap opera genre will find its way somewhere. But I don't know where. You know, I don't know if part of the answer is, you know, is more interactivity. 
Um, uh, I don't know if the answer is more as you know as you suggest transmedia storytelling or cross-platform storytelling where you know there are there's iPod there's um, podcasts that either supplement or um, uh, uh, in some way enhance the content that's provided the a real problem though is that you know there are such a limited number of people who do daytime and even you know finding people to do additional parts of the work if anybody's even interested in that being done i think that abc is i think that abc disney soapnet that wing of the business is is going to be the wing that's probably going to figure out what to do um, more likely than more likely than cbs because i think cbs is participating in the decline at the moment. Frankly, I think ABC is participating in the decline at the moment. But, uh, but I think that they have avenues. But I, I, I think that they, I think that, that, I think that ABC, ABC may have, may in the long run have more to protect. I'm, I, I'm not positive about that, but I, I, I mean just, I think that their shows may be stronger, maybe at this point maybe, maybe stronger. CBS has Restless, but, um, well, ABC owns the show. And, yeah, and ABC owns their shows, so uh, so they're not dealing with uh, alternate alternate ownership, and they're not dealing with other partners, and they they can really control them much more effectively than anybody else. NBC, we don't know what's going to happen. I, I mean, NBC is going to be without soaps before long, I think. Um, uh, I don't know if I responded to the question I was supposed to respond to, though. Which had to do with um, moving forward from. Um, what was your last question, Sam? You wanted me to continue to expand on something. Did I do that, or did I go off on a tangent? Uh, you you answered all the questions th throughout that, but the, you you touched on something else, and and I may have mentioned this to a few of you as I was in my last throes of my thesis research. But um, NBC, which canceled their show Passions, has had an interesting event in the last couple of weeks where Directv. Um, picked up passions, and the idea is that they're going to keep showing four new episodes a week of this of this soap opera. When, as soon as it gets canceled off NBC, it'll start as a Directv gated exclusive. So you have to have Directv in order to see it. And Directv has asked for a, a, um, complete exclusivity, so that there's no way to, to show it after the fact on through the uh, through iTunes or otherwise, at least not for a reasonable amount of time. And uh, so a lot of soap fans are looking at this as an interesting new model of how soaps could survive past. So the idea is doing, by only doing four episodes a week instead of five, they could cut the budget down enough to create a, an alternate uh, business model by eliminating a day a week. Um, do you think, given the, the nature of soap operas started in a broadcast medium, um, and now we're not in a broadcast medium anymore where there's only three, there's only three channels, uh, as, as soaps move off the networks, and if, if more soaps in the long run, if the, if the passions model to go into a to go into more of a niche cable satellite channel proves fruitful, and other soaps end up in that in that era. Do you think? Do you think, How do you think this will change soap operas by being on Directv rather than being on uh, NBC? Well, I think it's a really a really really interesting question because I think that uh, to sustain them in the Directv model may be you know for. To sustain to sustain a show in the Directv model, if I understand how it works, which I'm not sure that I do, um, uh, may be easier than to sustain them within the network venue. Um, uh, in that, well, there's a, 
there's the problem of, of the accessibility being only through direct TV. Um, and, and that's not the same as a cable access or um, uh, so, so the direct TV model in and of itself. But getting them off networks and into a friendlier venue um, might, may well be the wave of the future. The problem with that is, though, how do they get produced? Uh, because you know most of the cable, mo most of the cable um, uh, shows are they're, they're, they are a broadcast medium, they're not a production medium. The shows are produced, you know, wherever they're produced. Restless is produced at CBS Studios. Um, the Directv thing, they're going to continue producing at NBC Paramount, um, uh, and 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 see and see how it works. So. If they can find an effective way to produce the shows economically enough to make them economically workable in a different broadcast, in a different, in a different venue, I think that that, you know, I think that that might be an answer. I think, you know, SoapNet seems to me to have a great deal of potential because it is a whole network that's geared to a particular kind of viewer, like the NASCAR channel, like you know, there's no wrestling channel, but you know, um, uh, but but it's it becomes a much more it becomes more of a niche channel. But in terms, in, but in terms of keeping that of keeping the audience, uh, but of having you know maybe a uh, maybe a less great need for the numbers to be what they were, uh, and still for the show to be survivable. Um, it seems like these kinds of models might be the answer. But I don't, I don't have a clue, really. I haven't studied it, and I don't have a clue what the economics would really be. Um, so, Lynn wants to. Well, I was going to tell her what the economics of SoapNet have just been revealed. Since. Oh, yeah, well, that's, well, that's, well, that's true. Well, that's true. I mean, in, in no, short, so, right, Soap, SoapNet has decided to start airing four episodes a day of Dallas, um, 90210, Melrose Place, uh, the OC, and, um, oh, they take off and One there? Tree Hill, and then took off a lot of the uh, Ryan's Hope and Another World and a lot of the old sh they soaps did, there. Yeah. And I know Ryan's Hope's there is one Ryan's day Hope a week. Two, two but, but, the, a week. but the, a lot of the fans yeah. are arguing, but it's not SoapNet anymore if you're not showing any. It, it, the, the fewer soap operas you show, the less that this is SoapNet and it's transforming into something else. So the yeah. idea that fans see is a show that was created for a long-tail business model that then was successful enough and got, it, got enough clearance that the network wanted to change it to become something, something that could compete with Lifetime or something that could actually be more than just a niche channel. And, uh, and so a lot of fans I know have been up in arms because there was a small but dedicated view viewership a lot of a lot of the, the SoapNet long tail content, archived well, content. The, the cancellation of Another World, I read, maybe it was on Snark TV Guy somewhere, it was because they were drawing absolutely nothing in the 18 to 49 demographic. In looking at those shows um, on SoapNet, I, I was never another world viewer, um, and I did not watch that many episodes on SoapNet, but one thing that you do have to assess, I think, especially with shows that are no longer on the air, is the degree, the degree of datedness and the degree of the degree of cult commitment, you know, like I wonder if they put. It, it may just be too long now, but I wonder if they put like Dark Shadows on, um, which had a huge cult followership. Now they may have tried to sort of be experimenting with that when they had Port Charles on, and uh, I don't know if it's still on or not. I hope not, because um, uh, uh, because it's really not watchable. Um, 
but Ryan's Hope has held up amazingly well. Yeah, Ryan's Hope was always a great show. It was a beautifully written show. It was a, you know, I mean, it's it's very dated in terms of production. It's held up the story. But it's well, I think old episodes of shows that are still on the air play much differently than old episodes of shows that went off the air, whereas at least like old shows of a show that's still on the air have characters in common and showing backstory. So even the datedness works in a way because you're showing the history of, of that show. Ryan's Hope is just a... Gym. So they're keeping it on what two days a week? No, two shows. They were showing two shows a week. I had a very nice routine. Uh, it, it, I recorded it recorded from five to six in the morning. I got up, peed, meditated, and watched the two episodes and eased my way into my day. It was really quite lovely. <laughs> you speak of the habituation of the medium. It's now been changed to five to six on Sunday morning. So it's gone from 10 shows a week to two shows a week and upset my routine and I'm not happy. That does upset your routine. I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, anyway. So are there, are there any other questions? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're, we're moving, we can move on to the reception area of this and, and, and wrap up this portion. But um, I thank you for coming, Kay, and, and for sharing your insights with us. and. Uh, We'll be moving over now to Henry's place, even though Henry's not here, uh, for the reception portion of the evening. So thank you very Great. much.